Turn your Bibles to Second uh, Samuel chapter 17. Ahithophel, David's favorite counselor and friend, has taken sides with Absalom, and we discussed that the last time. The reason, apparently, is the fact that David had married uh, Uriah's wife, who happens to have been uh, the granddaughter of Ahithophel, and the circumstances around that adulterous situation and Ahithophel finding out about it must have really, really been a very bitter thing for him. And over the various numbers of years that passed between that event and the events, the events that are taking place now, uh, that bitterness had taken root. And Ahithophel was uh, not only on Absalom's side, but he counseled Absalom in a very, very bad way, uh, as we looked at the last time. But his counsel was considered to be almost as though God were speaking. He was such a very, very knowledgeable and a well-trusted counselor of David and now of Absalom. So chapter 17 begins with another counsel from Ahithophel, and uh, this time it looks as though it's not quite as well received as he thought it might be. But take note of what he says as he gives us counsel, and you'll see something that I think reveals that great bitterness that I was just talking about. Verse 1 of chapter 17 says, Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him when he is weary and weak, and make him afraid, and all the people who are with him will flee, and I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you, when all return except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Take note of how often he says, I will do these things. It's almost like Satan when he uh, is said by Ezekiel to have made those same kinds of boastful statements. I will ascend to the Most High. I will be like the Most High. I will go to the north of the hill. I will do this. I will do that. And God answers Satan with a bunch of I wills himself. And all of those I wills by God is related to the destruction that would come and the things that God was going to do in spite of what Satan had thought he might be able to do. God's I wills were far superior to Satan's. And so it is here with Ahithophel. God has other plans. Ahithophel will not be able to do as he had intended. He wanted to kill, be personally the one who would take David's life. That's how much hatred had uh, begun to, uh, from the very beginning, form in his mind and in his heart, and ultimately culminated in a desire to do away with David in such a, a terrible way as this. So the advice sounded pretty good at first, but God, again, is not going to allow Ahithophel to succeed. Remember, David had sent some of his Mossad spies, the agents of David, into Jerusalem. Hushai, his very best friend, was one of them, along with the sons of the priests, Zadok and uh, Abiathar, uh, Jonathan and his other friend, sons of those two priests, were also 
working as spies in the land, trying to figure out what Absalom's next move was going to be. So Hushai had come into the court and he apparently was received by Absalom. We saw that in chapter 16. And now that Ahithophel has given this counsel, we see that the advice of Hushai is asked for, which is very, very unusual. Remember the last time Ahithophel spoke out as a counselor, his counsel was accepted without question and acted upon immediately. And even though they thought that it seemed good, it pleased Absalom and all of the elders of Israel, then Absalom said in verse 5, Now call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he says too. That was because God planted that in his heart to ask for this. There's no other explanation. We'll see that as we read a little bit further on, that it is indeed God who is setting this all up for David's benefit ultimately. So he calls for Hushai, David's dear friend. And it says in verse 6, When Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him, saying, Ahithophel is spoken in this manner. Shall we do as he says? If not, speak up. Now Hushai wants to try to convince Absalom to not do what Ahithophel has suggested in the counsel that he gives. That's a really tall order, but that's what David had sent him to try to accomplish. Remember when David heard that Ahithophel was with Absalom, he immediately went to prayer and said, Lord, confuse Absalom and cause the counsel of Ahithophel to fail. So Hushai is there and he is asked to do something that is a very, very difficult task. Convince Absalom that Ahithophel's counsel was not good. And that's precisely what he says, but he adds something interesting. He says in verse 7, Hushai said to Absalom, the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time, or just simply this time. In other words, Ahithophel's counsel is always right, but this time it isn't quite the right counsel for this day. That's quite a courageous thing for him to say. He's not saying that Ahithophel's counsel is wrong. It's just not the right counsel for now. So he's sort of softening the blow to Ahithophel and to Absalom if Absalom were to be perhaps offended by this opposite point of view. But he goes on and says in verse 8, giving his reason. For, said Hushai, you know your father and his men, that they are mighty men, and they are engaged in their minds like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is a man of war and will not camp with the people. So he's giving reasons now for the plan of Ahithophel not to be successful because of what he knows of David in his valiant ways as a warrior and along with the men of David as well. But he makes a good point. David isn't going to be just sleeping with the people. He's going to find a place to hide. He'll make himself scarce. He'll be by himself and maybe with a few surrounding him. But he's not going to be available. He's not going to be out in the open. You won't find him easily. That's his point. And verse 9, he continues to say, Surely by now he is hidden in some pit or in some other place. 
And it will be when some of them are overthrown at the first that whoever hears it will say, there is slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. So it will go against Absalom. Now, he's also going to say something that will address Absalom's personal pride in this matter. He says in verse 10, And even he who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion and melt uh, continually or completely, all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and those who are with him are valiant men. Therefore, I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, like the sand that is by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. Don't let Ahithophel go to kill David by himself and 12,000 men, and that probably would have worked, by the way. But he says, take all of the army that you can gather from all the way northward to Dan and all the way southward to Beersheba, Gather all the forces of Israel and go by the greatest amount of force that you can come and you be the one who leads the charge, Absalom. You, the king on the throne in Jerusalem, need to make yourself look to be valiant like your father David was. You go and lead the people. That is huge. That's important. And it plays very well into God's plan. In fact, it says in verse 12, He'll continue to add to this. So we will come upon him. Hushai is saying he'll be glad to go with uh, Absalom. We will come upon him in some place where he may be found, and we will fall on him as a dew falls on the ground. In other words, we'll overwhelm him. And all the men who are with him also, there shall not be left so much as one. Moreover, if he is withdrawn into a city and that was indeed a likelihood, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city, and we will pull it into the river until there is no small stone found there. So, Hushai is saying, we can do this if we've got the manpower. We can do it with overwhelming force, and you, Absalom, will be the one who leads the charge. Verse 14 says, Wow! Absalom and all the men of Israel said, well, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might distract or bring disaster on Absalom. It was God's plan. God used Hushai. The author of Second Samuel is making a point here that it wasn't just Hushai coming up with this plan, it was God putting that plan together in Hushai's mind as he spoke it, and he was able to deliver this counter option that seemed even better than Ahithophel's plan. That's God. You know, it's interesting to me, and I think we've seen it, especially in the New Testament scriptures, where the Lord is telling his disciples that when you go into the place of kings and princes and counsel them and give them a defense for what you believe, it is not you who will speak. It is the Spirit of God who will speak through you. So do not fear what you shall say. Do not worry about what you shall say because God will give you the words at the right time. And I believe that's what he did here by the Spirit of God upon Hushai, the counselor and friend of David, to present to Absalom and to all of the elders of Israel a better plan in their eyes. 
and it definitely would have obviously been a good plan. But what this plan does for David is it gives David time. Because Ahithophel's plan would have been immediate because they had the men with them to do that, which Ahithophel had said. They would have come on to David very quickly and it would have been a surprise attack and might have been successful. The plan of Hushai, however, would require some time to gather up all of the armies from the various tribes of Israel and bring them down into a local place where they can then organize into a single army and move across the Jordan River, which by that time David would surely have crossed, and then attack David wherever they might find him. But that bought time for David. However, he had to get the message to David. And remember, he's a spy, he's in Jerusalem, and he's got some help, but he's got to get the word to those people so they can get the word to David. And so, we find now that David's going to be warned by Hushai through the sons of Zadok and Abiathar. It says in verse 15, Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have advised. So he gave them both plans. The priests were in Jerusalem. He passes the information on to the priests. Then he says, Now therefore, verse 16, Send quickly and tell David, saying, Do not spend this night in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. So he's still concerned that Absalom might possibly change his mind, so he insists that Zadok and Abiathar make haste to tell David as quickly as they can to get over the Jordan River fast. Do it soon in order to prevent a sudden attack by Absalom's armies. Verse 17 says, Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz stayed at Enrogel. Now those are the sons of Zadok and Abiathar. Jonathan and Ahimaaz stayed at Enrogel, which is south of Jerusalem, for they dared not be seen coming into the city. So a female servant would come and tell them, and they would go to the king and tell King David. So the order was, Zadok and Ahimethel, uh, Abiathar would tell this woman, this woman would leave Jerusalem secretly, presumably, go to the sons, Jonathan and Ahimehaz, to tell them, and then they would go and tell David. So it was quite a network of spies that had already been set up for David for this very purpose. Verse 18 says, Nevertheless, a lad saw them. Go figure. They got caught. They were found out. A lad saw them and told Absalom. But both of them went away quickly and came to a man's house in Bahurim who had a well in his court and they went down into it. Now that's somewhere near the uh, river that separates uh, the wilderness from the uh, Hinnon Valley. It's a small brook that on the other side of that brook, this little town is where they were staying. And they're hiding now in a well that has been now covered up by the woman who owns the well with grain so that they could be well hidden. Kind of reminding me, uh, it's reminiscent of what uh, Rahab did when the spies of Joshua went into Jericho. And in order to prevent them from being found out, they were also covered by flax on the rooftop of Rahab's house. The same idea, it's being done again with this woman in this 
town uh, not too far away from Jerusalem. So the woman spread a covering over the well's mouth and spread grain on it, and the thing was not known. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimehaz and Jonathan? So the woman said to them, Well, they've already gone over the water brook. And when they had searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. It may have been only a half-hearted search, we're not really told, but they weren't able to find the men because they were well hidden by the woman, just as Rahab had done a great job hiding the spies in Joshua's day. Verse 21 says, Now it came to pass after they had departed that they came up out of the well and went and told King David and said to David, Arise and cross over the water quickly, for thus has Ahithophel advised against you. So David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed over the Jordan. By morning light, not one of them was left who had not gone over the Jordan. Now, it doesn't say that they didn't tell David about Hushai's plan, but it did say that they were very concerned about the fact that Ahithophel had counseled Absalom in this way. And that's why there was such a great haste in order to get David out of harm's way. So David crossed the Jordan. All night long they did this. It was a very tiresome crossing, and they were weary. They were very tired. But they're moving in the right direction. And for now they're safe, because Absalom is going to take the council of Hushai, and it is going to be a short amount of time at least for the armies to come together. And that again buys David time to find a way to gather to himself a large number of people who would be on his side from Gilead, from Benjamin, from Manasseh, from those territories east of the Jordan River that were part of Israel. And he was actually able, apparently, to gather together a fairly large group of people. And he was going to be able to eventually move from the Jordan River into a gated city. We'll find that out as we move forward. But David is now able to get the help he needs. It says in verse 24... I'm sorry, verse 23, this is very important. Verse 23 says, Now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, so Absalom has taken Hushai's advice, he's gathering up his army, Ahithophel realizes his counsel was not used, and because of that, he immediately must realize David's going to win. He knew David well enough that if he had time, David would be victorious. This element of surprise might have worked, but now that his counsel of surprise attack has been rejected, Ahithophel realizes his days are numbered because David will treat him as treasonous. And when he finds Ahithophel, David won't let him live. Ahithophel knew that would be the case. It's pretty, pretty likely that that was the most obvious thing to Ahithophel as he reasons through what's taking place now. So verse 23 again says, When he realized his advice had not been followed, he saddled saddled a donkey, arose, and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died. And he was buried in his father's tomb. Now again... Think forward to the New Testament scriptures on the night that Jesus was betrayed. 
Remember, Ahithophel was David's friend as well as counselor. And in the New Testament Scriptures, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, his friend also, Judas Iscariot, came and betrayed him. And once that betrayal had been taken, put into place, Judas repented. But it wasn't a godly repentance, apparently. It was a repentance that leads to destruction, not to salvation. And that destruction came when Judas himself committed suicide, just like Ahithophel does here. Two very prominent suicides in the Word of God. This one of Ahithophel in the Old Testament and that of Judas in the New. And they are very similar in scope. They committed suicide because they both had betrayed their friend. Bitterness had entered into their hearts and they could not let it go. It's a strainful thing when we don't deal with bitterness. It's not only shameful, it's very dangerous. And it does lead, in many cases, to utter destruction. We must keep that in mind. The Word speaks so very, very much against the uh, idea of allowing bitterness to bear root or to grow in our hearts because the root of bitterness will destroy us. We need to be on the side of mercy and grace when it comes to our relationships with others and not let that kind of hatred that these men had faced to continue to fester and grow and cause great harm. So much had been done that should not have been done. All of that was as a consequence of David's sin. Let us never forget that. Sin has consequences. And the sin of David always wore heavily on David's heart. And all of these events were adding to the grief that David felt over his having committed the sins of an adulterous affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. But soon it's going to get even worse for David. Verse 24 says, Then David went to Mahanaim, a city east of the Jordan River, in Gilead, and in Absalom crossed over the Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. And Absalom made Amasa captain of the army instead of Joab. Remember, Joab is with David still. Amasa is a cousin of Joab, as we will find out in this very long explanation of who Amasa is, found in verse 25. It says, This Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Jithra, an Israelite, who had gone into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, who was sister of Jeruiah, Joab's mother. So in other words, this Amasa is a cousin of Joab. Through an illegitimate relationship of a sister of Joab's mother. Simple, easy to figure out. So verse 26 says, So Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. Now it's important for us to know about this Amasa because he's going to play a role later on as well. But now he's with Absalom and he's with Absalom as his general of the armies of Absalom. So Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead, and now it happened when David had come to Mahanaim that Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the people of Ammon, Maker, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, 
He brought beds and basins and earthen vessels and wheat and barley and flour, parched grain and beans, lentils and parched seeds, honey and curds, sheep and cheese of the herd for David and all the people who were with him to eat. For they said, The people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. That's a true statement. They were. These were much-needed supplies brought by these faithful non-Israelite men, Gentiles, friends of David, who came to the rescue of David at this very, very crucial time. They were now well-fed. They were in the wilderness. They had been thirsty, but now they are in top shape, ready for battle. This is a very important aspect of what is going on, that God provides the help that his servant needs at the right moment of time. It wasn't too late, and it wasn't too early. It was just at the right time. I love the way God does things at just the right time, don't you? Well, chapter 18 continues and says, in verse 1, David numbered the people who were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. So it's now, obviously, it's not just his 600 valiant men that were with him when he was in Gath. Now he's got a multitude of people, and he's able to form them into three groups of several thousand men. He set captains over these groups. In verse 2 it says, And David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, and one-third under the hand of Abishai, his brother, the son of Jeruiah, and one-third under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. Now remember, Ittai, he had come to Jerusalem just the day before David fled from Jerusalem, and David said, you should go back to your home. And Ittai said, no, where you go, I go. I am yours, and I will fight for you to the death. And so David now puts him in charge of a third of his armies. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. But the people answered, verse 3, You shall not go out, for if we flee away, they will not care about us. Nor if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now. So for you are now more help to us in the city. You stay back in the city, David, and take care of things here in this walled city. If they do attack the city, that's when you will have to move and fight against the armies of Israel. But we will go out in this battle. You stay here behind us. Now that's something that was a very important strategy. But it also reminds, I think, David of the time when he voluntarily stayed behind in Jerusalem on that fateful day when the armies of Israel went out to war against the Philistines and David saw and set his eyes upon Bathsheba. But he's in the city for a far different reason than that this time. So verse 4, David says to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do so. I will also do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. Now the king had commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. He's David's son. He doesn't want any harm to come to Absalom. So he says, In the hearing of all the people, it says, in the latter part of verse 5, all the people heard when the king gave all the captains orders concerning Absalom. So it was very, very well known that David's desire was for Absalom to be taken alive and not harmed. 
Verse 6 says, So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. So the strategy was, we've got a smaller force, we can maneuver much more quickly than the large force of Absalom through the woods of Ephraim, which, by the way, is not in the territory of Ephraim. The woods of Ephraim are in the territory of Gilead. They're still on the eastern side of the Jordan River, far from Ephraim, but those woods where they are located were just named that, and the people were taking advantage of the protection afforded by the trees and the thickness of the forest and the brush, and the larger army was not able to maneuver as quickly as they would have in an open field, and it served to be a very advantageous thing for David's army. And of course, the valiant men of David knew how to fight in every terrain. They were battle-hardened warriors, and they took advantage of it. And many people were killed. 20,000 souls died in that battle. Verse 9 says, Then Absalom met the servants of David. So he's coming in the battle. Remember, he's leading the charge, and this is what takes place in verse 9. Absalom met the servants of David, and Absalom was riding on a mule. But the mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth or oak tree, and his head caught in the terebinth, so he was left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule which was under him went on. So you may remember in the previous study, we were talking about the fact that the writer put this very, very strange verse in the middle of a passage that it didn't seem to belong it talked about the fact that Absalom cut his hair once a year. And his hair was very heavy, very thick. And it grew very, very fast, apparently, because he cut it. In, and one year later, it was about five pounds of weight of hair. So it was very lengthy, flowing, curly black hair. And as he's riding on this mule, running now from the servants of David after he comes head on with them. He turns and runs or rides on his mule. And as he's going along, he's in the woods and he finds himself stuck by the hair in the tree that he tries to ride under. And that's where he ends up hanging from the tree, unable to touch the ground. His mule has run off and he's just unable to do anything. He's stuck. And nobody's around to help him, apparently. And a certain man, one of David's men, saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth or oak tree. So Joab must have also been very nearby for this communication to take place. So Joab said to the man who told him, You just saw him. Why did you not strike him there on the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. Great reward. I'm not so sure about the belt, but the silver would have been nice. 
Verse 12 says, But the man said to Joab, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against a king's son, for in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. So this soldier was more fearful of the king's response than he was of Joab's response. May not have been a good idea because Joab is a very impulsive, powerful, valiant man of war. However, Joab isn't going to do anything to this soldier, but he's going to take matters into his own hands. Verse 13 says, The man is still talking, otherwise I would have dealt faultlessly against my own life. For there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. So the man is saying, if David wouldn't have slain me, you would have, because I didn't obey the king's command. So he's right. Then verse 14 says, Then Joab said, I can't hang around with you any longer. I'm going to take matters into my own hand. He took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. Then ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So just to make sure he was dead, these ten servants of Joab finished the job. They hacked him up, apparently, pretty badly. Verse 16 says, So Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab held back the people. The leader of the people of Israel is dead. Now, the people who were with Absalom are going to go back to Israel. Their hope of winning the battle has now been lost. Absalom is dead. David's going to come back to Jerusalem. They better scoot while they can. Verse 17 says, And they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Now Absalom, in his lifetime, previous to this, obviously, he had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and to this day it is called Absalom's monument. Now that was in the time of the writer of Second Samuel. Now we're not certain of where that was. We're told here that it's in the king's valley, which would have been in the valley of Hinnom, somewhere south of Jerusalem. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you will indeed be allowed to visit a memorial that is known as Absalom's Monument or Absalom's Pillar. Some say it was this very pillar, but history tells us that it was a pillar that was erected by somebody during the Byzantine period around 400 AD. It may still be the location of the original pillar, but the one that is presently in Jerusalem today was built as kind of a tourist attraction would be built. It's marking the supposed spot of some great event. And if you were to go to Israel today, and hopefully many of us might be able to someday do that, if you go to Israel today, you will find many monuments that are set up with that very thing in mind. The monument commemorates some certain event, some certain thing that happened, uh, a place that we can go to that will bring to memory the events that are recorded in the scripture. That's good, but there's not necessarily any validity as far as to the 
the, the actual location that these monuments are placed upon. Some of them are certain, some of them are not so certain. Some of them are probably very far from the truth. But they're there, and they are good means by which people can remember the past as it's recorded in the Word of God. Well, that's what Absalom had wanted to do. He wanted his memory of his name to be in stone and last for a long, long time, and it certainly has. Not for the right reasons, but his memory still is very, very well known. Verse 19 says, Then Ahimehaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run now and take the news to the king, how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. So Joab said to him, You shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day. But today you shall take no news, because the king's son is dead. You're too close to the king, apparently, he's thinking, for you to be the carrier of this bad news for the king. So then, in verse 21, Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. And Ahimehaz, the son of Zadok, said to Joab again, But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. So Joab said, Why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? You're not going to be the carrier of the news because I just gave that to the Cushite. But whatever happens, he said, let me run. So he insisted, please, let me run. Come on, Dad, let me do this. Oh, please, Dad, can I go? Can I go? Finally, Dad gives him and says, All right. Well, this isn't Ahimaaz's dad, uh, but he's asking Joab like a son would ask his father. And finally, Joab does give in. Whatever happens, he said, let me run. So he said to him, all right, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now, the reason he outran the Cushite is because he ran by the plain, which means he followed a path, a winding path, but a very, very easy path along the riverbed from where they were into the city. The Cushite, on the other hand, took a straight shot path through the woods, and it was slow going. And because of that, Ahimaaz was very, very smart, and he made it there more quickly than the Cushite could make it. Verse 24 says, Now David was sitting between the two gates in the city, waiting for word. And the watchman went up to the roof over the gate, to the wall. And he lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and there was a man running alone. And then the watchman cried out and told the king. And the king said, If he is alone, there is good news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. Then the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, Well, there is another man running alone. And the king said, He also brings good news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimehaz, the son of Zadok. I'm not exactly sure how he could tell from that distance the running style of this son of Zadok, but there was something in his gait perhaps, perhaps because he had long legs, or perhaps he had short legs and was running very quickly. Sometimes people with short legs can move along much faster than people with long legs. I know that for a fact because my wife, who has very short legs, can outwalk me almost all the time when she wants to walk fast. I have a hard time keeping up with her. 
and my legs are considerably longer than hers. But in any case, Ahimaaz made it there first. I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, he said. <laughs> yes, it was. And verse 28 says, So Ahimaaz called out and said to the king, All is well. And he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And David's very, very first thought is given in verse 29. The king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant to me, your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. Now, wait a minute. Think back again. Look at verse 20 with me, which we just read. It tells us, Joab said to him, Ahimaaz, You shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day. But today you shall not take the news. Why? Because the king's son is dead. Ahimaaz knew that uh, uh, Absalom was indeed dead. But here, he doesn't want to tell David that news. Probably a smart thing on his part. But he's basically lying to David. He knew what had happened to Absalom, but he could not bring himself to tell David. So verse 30 says, The king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood. And just then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, there is good news, my lord the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against you do harm, against you to do harm to you, be like that man. In other words, he's done. He's gone. They got him. That's not the news that David wanted to hear. He wanted Absalom to be kept alive. He wanted him to be safe and brought and possibly somehow restored by David as the king and accept Absalom's rebellion as the consequence of his own unfaithfulness. David was willing, I think, to do that. And Joab was not willing to let him have that privilege. Joab is the one who killed Absalom. David's going to find out soon enough. But now that he finds out that Absalom is dead, it doesn't really matter who it was who killed his son. All he can do is cry. And verse 33 tells us the depth of terrible, terrible emotion that overwhelmed this man of God. Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David grieved greatly for his son. Regretting, perhaps, all of the things that had gone on between him and Absalom that led to this very thing. Oh, how bitter it is when things don't go the way you would like them to go. Oh, how hard it is to realize you can't change anything now. It's too late. There's no way to make recompense. There's no way to reconcile. There's no way to make amends. 
all of that which has passed is not going to be able to be changed at all. How sad it is. And that, my friends, is where we should be perhaps stopping our study tonight and thinking about the consequences of anything that we might perhaps be involved in in our relationships with other people that would cause us to not want to make amends, that would cause us to say, I'm not going to forgive that one. I'm not, and it may be just temporarily intended. I'm going to make that one suffer for a while. I'm not going to do it now. I'll, I'll forgive that one later. Or maybe I'll forgive, but I won't forget. Or possibly I ain't ever going to forgive. I just can't bring myself to do that. It's impossible. God can't make me change my mind. If any one of us have ever entered into that kind of pattern where we will not allow our hearts to be a forgiving heart, a mending heart, Though it may be very difficult, though it may be very, very hard, let us be very, very aware of the consequences of withholding forgiveness from those with whom we have been dealing. Whether we did something to them or they did something to us or both, it matters not. It needs to be dealt with. And may we have the courage to do so. May we have the God-given ability to go to our friends, our relatives, our neighbors, whoever, and take the first step toward forgiveness. Now, you may find that if you do so, that one is not ready to reciprocate. That doesn't matter. You will have done your part. And as the Word of God tells us by the Apostle Paul, as much as is in you, be at peace with one another. Brothers and sisters, that's so very important. David has been very, very troubled over these last several years. And it's not going to get much better immediately. Eventually things will be restored partly. But David could have found a much better last several years of his life, perhaps, if he had done the things that he should have done at the beginning. It's a good lesson for us to learn. May we learn it well. God bless you all tonight. Amen.